Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's message, Roots and Wings, comes from the scripture reading that I shared with you earlier from the 40th chapter of Isaiah. Before we get much further in it, I want to talk to you a little bit about the book of Isaiah because it's really a very interesting book. If you've never read it, I'd commend it to you. Let me give you a little bit of a preview. Isaiah is separated into two parts. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal with the impending judgment, but then the final 27 chapters of that book deal with forgiveness and deliverance. The first 39 chapters deal with sin, but the last 27 deal with the Savior. That's 66 chapters altogether. Now, if that sounds somewhat familiar, It should, because some people have said Isaiah is kind of like a little Bible. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 66 books in all. The Old Testament deals predominantly with sin. The New Testament deals predominantly with the Savior. When you read through Isaiah, you're even going to notice that there is a a very subtle change between the tone and the message. The first 39 chapters, there's a lot of warning about the destruction of a nation, the hauling off of people to foreign lands. The people had abandoned God, and God, had, it seemed, had abandoned them. The first part of the book, the first 39 chapters, when you read them, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, it's kind of tough reading. It is very plodding and heavy, but suddenly, when you get to chapter 40, The book takes off. It begins with kind of soaring, majestic language and wondrous hope. When Isaiah was led by the Holy Spirit to sit down and write this book, as he wrote the first part of his book, disaster had not yet come to the nation of Israel. I'll be honest, in the first 39 chapters, the people had already gotten pretty tired of listening to Isaiah and all of his warnings. They didn't like him talking about their need for repentance and the the need to kind of shape up or the need to return to God. But Isaiah wrote the second part of his book, those final 27 chapters, to people who had actually been hauled away into captivity in Babylon. And in captivity, they no longer needed to hear about judgment because they were living under judgment every day. They no longer needed to be reminded of the consequences of their sin because they could experience the consequences of their sin on a daily basis. So here in chapter 40, Isaiah suddenly turns a whole different direction and he brings three very comforting words to these people. They ought to be comforting words to us today. Three different themes. That's what I want to share with you today. The first theme is this, Isaiah spoke of an everlasting comfort. Now, they didn't need Isaiah standing in front of them like he'd done for 39 chapters and shake his finger in their face and say, I told you, so I'm warning you. They didn't need that anymore. What these people now needed to hear was that God cared for them and that there was still hope. And that's the word that came from God to Isaiah in the first two verses. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone 
and her sins are forgiven. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all of her sins. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that, as I study this, that the Hebrew word that Isaiah uses for comfort is the exact Hebrew word that's translated repent. Isn't that interesting? The Hebrew word is naham. And its root really is the idea of breathing deeply. And so it can mean to breathe deeply over your sorrow or sin, or it can mean to breathe deeply as you comfort or console somebody. The idea in our text here, when it starts out, comfort, comfort my people, is that because people have breathed deeply in repentance, God now could breathe deeply as he consoles and comforts them. Now, Isaiah had said to them, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and in trust is your strength. And finally, after 39 chapters, after years of living in captivity, being caught up by sin, the people were finally ready to receive this message of comfort and forgiveness. Their sin had been paid for, deliverances was in the air, but it had nothing to do with anything they had done. This was entirely the work of God. It was undeserved. It was unmerited. It's the same favor that you and I get. When we finally come to our senses and we breathe deeply of that repentance, guess what? God comes breathing deeply of his comfort and saying, friends, your sins are forgiven. No longer do you need to be held bondage by them. But he knew that the way had to be prepared for God to come. That's why in verses 3, 4, and 5, he says, Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting. It's that voice crying in the wilderness. Clear through the way through the uh, wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys, level the mountains and hills, straighten the curves, smooth out rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. See, God was going to come back for these people in captivity, and the way had to be prepared. Now, you need to understand a little Jewish history here to make sense of these verses. In ancient times, there were no superhighways. You didn't have tollways. You didn't have I-30 or I-35 going every which way. History tells us that months before the king would ever set out to take a visit, he would send word ahead telling the people, prepare the way for the king, make a straight way in the wilderness, a highway for the king. And so the, the people would run ahead of the king and all of his entourage, and they would get rid of any obstacle that might be in the way. They would fill in all the rough places. History says that they would often build roads for the king, that they would fill in the small valleys, that they would dig through hills so that nothing could stop the king from coming. And you'd say, well, what did they get out of this? Well, the reward was they got to see the king in all of his glory. And see, in this passage, God is on his way to his people who are now in slavery to a foreign nation. I think about how we can be in slavery to sin and Satan. But when our sins are forgiven, it's like it said, we've got to get ready for God to come back. And we level everything out and we fill in all of the gaps. We go through this repentance 
and confession because we want to see God, too, come back in all of his glory. See, he was going to come back and he was going to deliver them from captivity. He was going to bring them home on the highway of their repentance that they had prepared for him. And the picture here is of one of God coming in glory back from Jerusalem to take his people back to where they belong. And that was the great comfort that these people were longing for. Sad to say when we hear the word comfort today, we don't think in the same terms. Most of us, I'm going to describe comfort for you. I mean, comfort for me would be to go home, light the fire, sit in my big recliner, maybe have a comforter spread out over me, have my wife go get me a cup of hot chocolate while I lay there and read or watch the cowboys beat up on the Steelers. Let's go back to what that word really means. Comfort comes from two Latin words, com and fortis. Comfort really means with strength. See, God's way of giving us comfort is to give us the strength that we need to get what he wants done. Those of you that have experienced funerals in your life, there's always grief and sorrow. But guess what? We always seek comfort in those times. And guess what? As comfort comes, as strength comes, grief and sorrow go away. The situation may not have changed, but we have the new ability, godly ability, to face it. See, the people that Isaiah was speaking to needed strength to face the journey, not just to get there. They needed strength then to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. They were going to need a lot of strength. They were going to need a lot of comfort. They were going to need lots of encouragement. And see, that word encouragement has much the same meaning as comfort. You know, comfort with strength. Encouragement means to be encouraged. So God was comforting people. God was encouraging people so that they could carry out his will. That's really part of the message of the church, isn't it? That God has come to his repentant people to comfort them, to encourage them, to fill them with strength so that they might do what he has called them to do. Now, sometimes God's spirit comes into our life and it seems almost that he forces us to make a change. Maybe you've heard this before. I, I've heard somewhere that the Spirit of God comes sometimes to comfort the afflicted and sometimes to afflict the comfortable. See, the other way that God comforts his people is by letting them know that he will take care of their enemies. Now, when these people were in captivity, they looked at Babylon and they thought nobody could beat Babylon. Babylon was a breathtaking city with its beautiful buildings and that wonderful, one of the seven wonders of the modern world, or the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Nobody thought it was possible for them to ever destroy Babylon. But what does God say? Prophetically, he says these words. A voice, shout. I asked, what should I shout? Shout that people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of the Lord stands firm forever. See, what God was saying to them and what he would even say to us today, he said, no matter how powerful you think your enemy is, 
no power, no, no matter how powerful you think the Babylonians are, they're going to wither and fall just like a hot wind melts flowers. Now, the people in Babylon thought they would never, ever fall. In fact, they never posted a single guard on their city walls. Guess what? While their rulers were drinking and getting drunk one evening, the Persians came, and the Persians merely diverted the flow of the Euphrates River that flowed under the wall and through the city. And while all the Babylonians lay there drunk, they literally marched into town unnoticed on a dry riverbed. The great kingdom of Babylon disappeared overnight. One more time, God proved that even governments are like grass and only he remains. See, God not only spoke about comfort or encouragement, this strength that he gives us, but here's the second thing Isaiah speaks of. He speaks of this everlasting word. See, when all other claims of truth have come and gone, the word of God will stand in the end. Philosophies come and go, but the word of God is still the abiding truth. Philosophies come and go. There's God's word. Some of you are old enough, maybe remember the lies of the Nazis. Guess what? Came and died out. Many of us still remember the life of godless communism. It came and it died out in the former Soviet Union. In fact, I still remember being in Russia right after the fall of the Iron Curtain, being one of the first groups of people to go in to teach some of our Russian pastors who lived in exile for many years. And it, I remember we gathered at the training uh, service, a center for worship services, and, and there the backdrop of the wall painted were the hammer and the sickle and pictures of Marx and Lenin and, and other communist leaders who had always denigrated the Christian faith and, and, and who had always thought poorly of God's word. But on that day when we were there, when communism had fallen, we hung a sheet over those pictures and we projected praise songs on the place where they were taught the godless tenets of communism was a place that we were now teaching them the godly tenets of evangelism. Friends, that's just the power of God's word. It was God's word yesterday. It's God's word this morning. It'll be God's word this afternoon. <coughs> It'll be God's word 5,000 years from now. Kingdoms will rise. Kingdoms will fall. Ideas will come, ideas will go, values of the world will change, but God's word is the one remaining constant in this world of change and confusion. What a word of comfort that he brought. He brought that word of how God's word will stand, but there's a third thing he brings. Isaiah spoke of an everlasting strength. I've got this on your message outline, I think, somewhere from Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31. It's a little further down than what I read to you this morning, but many of you know these verses. It says, have you never heard, have you never understood, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. 
They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. The people who got this letter several thousand years ago from Isaiah were in exile. They had lost hope, and because of that, they'd lost their strength. They had lost their entire desire to go on. Even the young people living in bondage in Babylon were beaten down and weary and defeated. But those people, those people who still placed their hope and trust in God did not lose heart. And they did not lose their strength, no matter how old they were. See, their minds and their hearts soared as they thought about what God was going to do. I remember being in a church, consulting it a few years ago. A church that had some, in some way lost their heart. They'd lost their way. They were kind of beat up. And what their pastor did was bring words of comfort, brought words of encouragement, brought the word. And guess what? Their hearts began to be energized. They began to be stirred because for the first time in many years, they could see the glory and the grandeur of what it is that God was calling them to do. See, as new strength and as new courage enters your hearts, it even begins to affect your bodies. You know that? I walk around, I've got a certain number of aches and pains. In fact, after Nancy and I were hauling a few tables and stuff the other night, we sat there. Uh, you'd have thought we were 90-year-old people going to bed last night. Nancy wondered whether she'd be able to walk today, and part of me wondered the same thing. But, you know, I get up in the morning, and I just plain simple can't wait to get here. I just can't wait to see what God is up to. I just can't wait to see what happens to God's people. You ever done that before? Come to church kind of wondering what on earth you were coming for <laughs> and hoping it would be over and be over quick? Am I the only one who's ever felt that way? Oh, a few of you have. But you need God here. And I don't know what it was. I, I, I'm not saying it was a great sermon. I'm not, it could have been the songs. It could, have been, it could have been whatever. But we got new strength, new courage, and suddenly it wasn't like we cartwheeled all the way home, but we could walk out of here and not really feel any aches and pains. I mean, these people gained a brand new enthusiasm for life and a, and a great new strength to go on. But you don't get that unless you are willing to wait on the Lord. To wait for the Lord to give it and not try to generate it yourself. I don't know that there's a person in here who wouldn't like to mount up with wings like eagles. You ever watch the eagle soar, see him through a canyon or wherever? Isn't that cool? I mean, you ever thought, man, I'd love to do that. But somebody said one time, it's hard to soar with the eagles when you hang around with turkeys. But you know, that's really a cop-out when you think about it, because when God shows up, it doesn't make any difference who's around you. I heard this story a long time ago. It was about a young boy who spent the summer with his grandpa out on the ranch. One day they were out in the fields, and they found a rather small... I don't know, kind of ugly, strange-looking bird. They didn't really know what it was. They decided to call the bird Ernie. And they took the bird home to show him to Grandma because Grandma always kind of knew what to do with strange, ugly birds. Uh, Grandma took one look at him and threw him out in the chicken yard, put her with another mother hen and her brood of chicks, and lo and behold, 
they began to watch Ernie, and Ernie really turned out to be an eaglet, baby eagle. It wasn't long before Ernie was bigger than all the rest of the chickens, and, and it was pretty apparent that he was different from the rest of the chickens, but he kind of adopted some of the chicken attitudes. He would walk around, bob his little noggin, and eat the stuff off the ground. But one Sunday, one Sunday afternoon, um, the father eagle was going over, and he spotted Ernie down eating corn with a bunch of strange-looking white birds. Well, the father eagle began soaring in those big circles, and those circles got a little smaller and tighter as he got lower and lower, and he began calling out for Ernie. Well, Ernie lifted his head up because he heard something that resonated deep down within him. I mean, instinctively, he began to spread his wings out, and suddenly he was flying, and the next thing you know, he was soaring in response to his father's call. I mean, Ernie had in his heart the spirit of an eagle. You know, those little chickens heard the father's call too, but they just kept on clucking and continued to eat their corn. Now, I'm kind of surprised to learn this, but you know, turkeys and chickens can fly. But they rarely do it because they are far more comfortable parking their behinds and eating corn. Sparrows and other little birds fly, but you know, they only tend to kind of flit from branch to branch. But eagles, eagles were born to soar. I mean, they have the power, they have the freedom, they are destined for the skies. That's us, folks. You are no chicken. You were not created to be a turkey. You were not created to be a wren or a sparrow. You have a different spirit in you than other people who are content to be nothing but ground dwellers. All of us that are gathered here this morning have a higher calling. We are all destined for the skies. God's spirit is in us, and God says, I want you to soar with me. That's why he brings comfort. That's why he brings encouragement. That's why he brings strength. That's why he gives us the word. That's why he says you've got somebody who's with you all the time. But I've learned something about Christians. A lot of Christians disguise themselves as chickens and turkeys and sparrows because they don't really want to soar. They're more comfortable sitting on the ground than taking off and doing something that is really daring. Oh, some of those so-called Christians kind of flit from one activity to another, but they never really quite get off the ground and begin to soar. But I thank God that there are also a lot of people who wait on the Lord, and they respond to his call, and they trust in him, and they actually spread out their wings, and they use the strength that God has given them. Someone has said that there are two things that we need to give to our children. One of them is roots. The other of them is wings. Think about that, those of you who have children or have raised children or who are thinking of having children someday, or who have some godly influence on children somewhere, someplace. To give them roots, to plant them into the comfort of God, to plant them in the Word of God, to plant them in the everlasting God, and then give them wings and say, okay, honey, fly. 
Sometimes you got to kick them out of the nest. Sometimes you got to chop the umbilical. Sometimes they fly back home, boomerangers. But if they got roots, they'll fly. I want to end by just suggesting three things, parents, that you can give your kids. Three things you can teach them. Or a few things, maybe not three, maybe four. One of them is we can teach our children that there is a strength that comes from God that is greater than anything we have. That's one thing, that there's a strength greater than anything we can give them. A second thing we can do is we can teach them to wait on him. Teach them to wait on the Lord, to trust in him. Even when things around you look hopeless. But I think the very best thing we can do is to show them the reality of God's faithfulness. We can be living examples to our children and other people of the hope of God, of the living sources of comfort. We can be living proof of the reliability of God's word. We can be living examples of a strength that comes not from ourselves, but from God. We can give our children and we can give other people by our example roots and wings. Let's pray.